Uh, well, the first time I heard it, it didn't really draw me in too much. I think I was still too young. I had a friend with an older brother, and that would have been right around the time that Nevermind came out. So he kind of got it from him and played it a lot. Um, but then as I grew older, like a lot of the songs on there, I kind of see as, I don't know, really being able to relate to. I had a kid when I was 15, and I, I feel like a lot of the songs on there are kind of about relationships and having kids and feeling trapped and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So. Welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, but today we are getting off the Bruce Springsteen train and we are heading to a B-side episode where we're going to talk a different kind of music, uh, a different kind of legacy, so to speak. But before we get into specifics, I want to welcome my guest, Aaron, on the phone, Aaron Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Very nice. Uh, so, Aaron, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, well, I am almost 40. I live in Canada. Um, I was uh, an addictions counselor for about uh, eight years. And uh, recently, within the last three years, I started uh, trying more my hand at writing. So I've completed a couple novels and uh, just had my first one published, actually. Well, congratulations, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. That's got to that's that's got to feel good. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, it's a lot of uh, a lot more stuff to learn, but uh, I like learning stuff, so <laughs> it's good. Yeah, you know, it's um, it there's so much work involved in writing and and just trying to get it out there and get it published. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But you should feel proud. I appreciate that. I definitely do. Yeah, good. Um, so. Um, we always like to start at the beginning. So, um, by the way, uh, last name Lebold, is that how you say it? Uh, it's Lebold, but yeah. Lebold, okay. Yeah. So, um, I always like to start at the beginning, Aaron. So, talk to me, where did you grow up, and what kind of music did your family listen to as you were growing up? Um, I grew up in a small town. Uh, it was called Baden in Ontario. Okay. Um, it was even smaller back then. Um, my parents never really listened to a lot of music, but they had uh, – my sister and I found a, a few boxes of 45s, and there was a record player in her bedroom. So we used to kind of go through and take turns picking out uh, random 45s to listen to. So there was a, a few things. There was um, an artist called uh, – I don't know if you've ever heard of Napoleon the 14th. He okay. put out a song called uh, They're Coming to Take Me Away, haha. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so like that one, and like my sister liked uh, Do a Diddy, and like just there were some Beatles tracks and and that kind of stuff. So it was more fun than like when we were little kids, if, as, as opposed to anything really meaningful. If your parents weren't big biz music people, where did the 45s come from? Oh, they must have been into music at some point, okay. but uh, as far as I remember, like I don't remember them ever listening to them. Okay. And they never really listened to the radio or much of anything. My dad was gone a lot, though. He was a truck driver, so he wasn't okay. home very often. So uh, maybe they were more his and not my mom's. I'm not really sure. Okay. All right. Very cool. Um, older sister or younger sister? Older sister. All right. So was she a big influence on you on what music you like? 
Um, not really. I mean, okay. she's only a year and a half older than me, so we okay. were kind of going through that learning about music phase, like, pretty okay. close to the same time. All right, very nice. All right, so, Aaron, how about uh, you start growing up and um, reaching high school? Um, mm-hmm. What kind of music were you listening to then? Um, well, when I first found music, I was kind of just into what was popular, like like Maestro Fresh West and that kind of stuff when I was, like, 12 kind of thing. And then uh, a friend of mine made me a mixtape. And he put, um, like, dance mix on it, but then he also put Sweating Bullets by Megadeth. So that, that kind of grabbed my attention a little bit. And then um, I think maybe as I started experiencing life more, music started to become more important. And then I, that kind of went the way of, like, the Seattle scene. And um, I don't know, anything that I kind of found meaningful to me, really. Um, so I had a lot of diversity in who I listened to, but at the same time, it was more about lyrical content than it was necessarily about the music for a lot of it. Okay. Uh, where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to college? I went for addictions and community service. At a, um, it was a crappy, it was called Everest. They're not even around anymore. Okay. It was one of those like private ones. So. Why? What, what about that spoke to you? Why did you want to go into that field? Uh, well, I had uh, my own drug problems for okay. a good chunk of my life. So, um, and I was trying, actually, I was trying to be a musician for a long time, but um, okay. really the only thing I was good at was writing lyrics. I kind of found that, like, I, I didn't know anything about timing. I didn't know anything about, I couldn't sing. Like, I, I just really, but it, it was like I wanted to reach out and I wanted to help people kind of the way that I was helped by music. So that was the first thought of how to do that, how to give back, was to kind of follow the same route that, that found me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of hit a point where it's like, okay, like this isn't working. <laughs> like I made a CD and everything, but it was like honestly pretty horrible. And I was like, hey, this isn't what I want to do, so how can I help people? And then I ended up in a, um, it was actually like an anger management class. I got some charges, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like kind of, forcing people to talk about why were they it was like like court ordered right yeah and i found myself really enjoying going to that and i found that people were really listening to some of the things that i was saying and i found myself almost looking forward to going to it as opposed to dreading it like i initially did yeah and uh, when it was over i actually had somebody come up to me and tell me like you know well i really appreciate you know some of the stuff that you said really helped me so that just kind of got me thinking like what i could do for a job that would kind of give me that sense of satisfaction, and that's what led me to to go in the direction of addictions. Okay, interesting. So when you reached out to me, um, pulling the curtain back, I had posted that I was looking for guests in a um, Facebook page, and you reached out and said, well, I'm a big Nirvana fan. Would you want to have me join you and talk? And I said, absolutely. So talk to me about how you discovered their music and, and what about it spoke to you? Uh, well, the first time I heard it, it didn't really draw me in too much. I think I was still too young. I had a friend with an older brother and that would have been right around the time that Nevermind came out. So he kind of got it from him and played it a lot. Um, but then as I grew older, like a lot of the songs on there, I kind of see as, I don't know, really being able to relate to. I had a kid when I was 15 and I feel like a lot of the songs on there are kind of about relationships and having kids and feeling trapped and okay. and all kinds of stuff like that. So. Okay. Um, it, about what timeline is this when you're finding their music? Um, it would have been 
probably around the time that a neutro came out, so like 93, 94. Okay. I know it was just going from grade 8 to grade 9, so it would have been around that time. Okay. And and just for some, just it, it, it spoke to you and that music and, and uh, there's lyrics and that music was something that just really kind of, almost nourished your soul it sounds like yeah it really did like like, i don't know i probably would have said that at one point like that music saved my life like uh, i had a lot of really bad depression when i was like when i was younger that i Mm kind of refused to acknowledge yeah and there was just like a certain element that nirvana had specifically kurt like i like the lyrics and like what he said and then if you ever see him in interviews like he was always so down to earth and humble and yeah the way that he talked was another thing that kind of reinforced what i already felt yeah, so I mean, there was the entire albums really just kind of spoke to me, and even even some of the songs that I didn't connect with on it, I just still really liked. Mm-hmm. So is that what? Um, and so you started like, can you what? Is there a specific song? I think you kind of mentioned, but you know, a specific song or album that kind of got you, and then you know, what was your next steps? Did you just start going trying to find everything you could from there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was different points in my life where different songs kind of resonated louder than others. Um, I was with a girl for about five years and we broke up. She cheated on me. And like the lyrics of Lithium at that point were like very much spot on to how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And when I was having my kid, like I felt like my my daughter's mom was kind of controlling and really manipulative. And uh, so like Drain You was like at that point, like a really big one for me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I actually had a friend too who was a bit older than me who worked at a record store. Mm-hmm. So he would uh, let me know when any like bootlegs and like this was before the internet really, right? So sure. like he'd save up my money and he'd get all this stuff for me. So we'd find cool CD singles and and bootlegs mm-hmm. and I started a, a pretty massive collection actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, do you do you have a fair amount of that? Oh yeah. Yeah. And then once the internet came around, I found places that you could buy, like, the radio singles from, like, the one-song promo demos, and mm-hmm. so I've got, like, tons of stuff. Do you, um, so you are as passionate about them as a lot of my listeners are about Bruce. Yeah, I mean, over time, like, I think because now in my life, like, I don't feel like that anymore. Like, I still love the music. It just doesn't, like, it doesn't have the same you know extreme relation as it used to like but it was like a huge part of my life for a very long time and it's something that i'll always appreciate and something that you know i mean i'll never i'll never lose sight of what do you think changed i think my work as an addictions counselor really made me refocus a lot on life you know what i mean okay, sure and it's uh i mean you kind of give yourself a lot better advice when you're giving it to somebody else right sure so I think I, I took a lot of my own advice, and I think I really grew as a person. And um, I mean, a lot of Nirvana's music was kind of really important to me at a point where I felt like I wanted to die, right? So yeah. it was like something that was comforting and feeling like, you know, somebody understands and feeling like, you know what I mean, being able to relate to it that way. So now that I'm in a place where I'm kind of happier with my life, like I don't, I don't have that same connection. If that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. Um, my, I had a nephew, um, I still have a nephew, that was uh, very young, uh, really into um, Nirvana and Kurt. And like his, you know, my um, 
my sister-in-law would be concerned like oh you know i just i worry i worry about the angst and and with um his death and and you know that just where that's going talk to me a little bit about that from you as a fan and especially from the mindset of where you were struggling to feel secure and to feel you know safe his death and the band's legacy talk talk to me a little bit about that i i'm not a conspiracy kind of guy but i honestly don't believe that he killed himself okay i believe that it was probably courtney love paid someone to do it or and i'm sure there's people rolling their eyes at the thought of that but i know no, like, no, sure i mean and also because i don't I, I i felt like i almost knew the guy just because of how how much i was connected with it and like yeah. he had a daughter and i know with me as soon as my daughter was born it changed my whole perspective on everything you know what i mean and i think I know that he would have, you know what I mean? Like he was a compassionate guy. Like he wouldn't do that to his kid. You know what I mean? And like, there's just a whole bunch of like other circumstances that kind of point to that direction. Right. Like Courtney Love made them get a prenup before they got married. Cause she was so sure she was going to make it big. And then he made all the money. So she was going to get none. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, I could go on about that, but no, <laughs> you yeah, know. no, I understand. It is. Um, he's, How, where do you rank him among them in the band in in influencing modern music? Oh, I would put them up really high on the way that they, I mean, like that, that generation anyway. I mean, I don't think that much music now is really on the same wavelength as that. But I think like a lot of the 90s stuff was very much about emotion and feeling and getting in touch with yourself and, and that kind of thing. And I think that Kurt had a big part to play in that. Like, when you listen to the music, it's pretty simple music. Yeah. And I think what got them to where they got to was because his lyrics were, you know, so compelling that that inspired people to to really listen, right? And how much of his own addictions and struggles with um, heroin and, and, I assume, his depression – is that part of the reason why that music spoke to you so when you were in that dark place? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, and his music never says, like, give up. Like, it's all right. about, like, you know what I mean? Just being frustrated and, and talking about the things that are bothering you. So it kind of, it bothers me when people say that that's what he was all about, because that wasn't what it was at all. Um, I mean... I don't know. I mean, I think I would have probably got into heroin regardless. I don't think it had anything to do with him. I wasn't that kind of like idol worshiper sort of person, right. but um, it may have added some sort of allure. I'm not really sure. Okay. Well, but, I appreciate um, that honesty, right? That, but um, there are. I, I think people have addictive personalities. You know, I'm I'm sitting here that I am um, under tall. I could stand to lose, you know, 10 to 200 pounds. You know, I have struggled with my weight my whole life. Um, you know, one of our um, favorite stories is but the same by my same sister-in-law uh, is a nutritionist, you know, a dietitian. And we were talking about diets, different kinds of diets and, you know, like the no carb diet or, you know, um, 
Atkins or things or keto, whatever. And she was just like, you know, if a, if a diet tells you a banana is a bad thing, that's a bad diet. And so we're like, okay, Robin, what do you do? And she says, you know, you eat a well-balanced meal in moderation and you know that's the best way and we look do we look like people that go with moderation yeah (laughs) right uh i i can see um how long have you been clean how long have you been uh clean and sober uh 11 years july congratulations i know that is really hard thanks yeah it was uh, challenging but great decision so and and this fueled a lot of your not only your career but your work, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like when you're working with people telling them to stay clean, like you don't, you're a lot less likely to relapse, I think. Right? You don't want to go in there feeling like a hypocrite and being like, you know, I mean, I actually made a lot of good changes in my life when I started kind of doing that, that line of work. And I worked with teenagers, right? So it was kind of like, you know, people that are still figuring out who they are. And a lot of them come from some pretty horrible kind of backgrounds. So it offered a lot of insight into different people's lives and situations and stuff. What do you think, what, what do you think is one of the key reasons you've been able to connect with them and and make a difference? Um, I think I kind of have naturally good empathy. Like I'm pretty good at being able to put myself in other people's positions and see things from their perspective. Um, but I think a lot of them kind of look up to you when you do have experience. There was a lot of us that work there that were like recovering addicts and you know some of these kids like they'll they'll be like you know well someone who learned it from a book versus someone who's actually done it who am I going to listen to you know what I mean and that might not I'm not saying people that just went to school and haven't been drug addicts don't have skills and abilities but I mean some you know when you're looking through the eyes of a 16 year old Mm -hmm. that's kind of sometimes their perspective right so yeah well, good. Good for you. This is, I know it's, it's, it's important work and it sounds like it's satisfying work. It also has to be frustrating. Um, yeah, there was times where it was frustrating. I mean, sometimes kids, I mean, it was a voluntary program, but sometimes the kids didn't really have very many options, right? Like right. go to jail or go there or get kicked out of your house or go there. Like, yeah. so a lot of them didn't really believe in it, mm-hmm. but it kind of, you kind of get used to it. It was a six month program, right? So it was almost like there was sort of a, you know, a method to it, you know what yeah. I mean? First month, yeah. this is what you're going to see. Second month, this is what you're going to see. Yeah. That kind of thing. So, I mean, it kind of desensitizes you a little bit too when you kind of, you know what I mean? When I first started, like a lot of the stories hit me a lot harder. And like yeah. after doing it for eight years, it was kind of like, you know what I mean? I, 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 I know exactly what you're talking about, though. I don't know exactly if that makes sense. Um, so just to share a little bit from me, um, I've been managing people in a contact center probably um, – I, I've been in a contact center since 89, probably started being a manager around 93, 94. Oh, yeah. And um, the first time I had to um, let someone go um, to end their job, terminate them, um, I, I, I couldn't sleep the night before. Yeah. I was just – I was just – just the anxiousness and knowing that they're going to have to go home and tell their spouse that they don't have a job and, you know, what are we going to do? And, and, and I just felt horrible. And, um, in, by, in 2003, um, the company I was worked for, we had had so many downsizes and we had had to do this so often that I woke up 
on a more like on a Thursday or Friday and went, oh yeah, we're laying off people today. I'd forgotten all you forgot that, yeah. and I did not like that feeling. I understood the feeling, but I didn't like that. Yeah, and it was a lot like that with me too. I mean, I still cared and I still yes, had absolutely. compassion for the kids, but it kind of turned into more of a like procedural thing almost where it was like you still do your best to help them but you've helped so many other people it's like you don't have to put the same thought into it and you don't you don't really get the same aha moments of like oh that's such a good idea it's like you know the treatment plan is brand new for each kid but when you're kind of doing the same it's the same program so when you're kind of doing the same program over and over and over right when you got four kids on your caseload at any given time it just it just starts feeling almost robotic even though it's new to them yeah and, and that doesn't mean, as you said, you're not there for them and you're not saying what they need and providing and, and not that you don't care. It is, though, and gosh, I hate this. It's a process. And, and you know, yeah. and, and if the process, the process is successful, if you work the process and by being that um, methodical about the process is giving them the best chance to success, correct? Yeah. And I mean, to go along with that, too, like when I first started, I was really bad at enforcing rules and getting kids in trouble. Like when I first started, I kind of wanted them to all be my friend. I wanted them all to like me. Absolutely. And as I went on, I kind of realized that like a lot of these kids are looking for structure. They're looking for discipline. They're looking for and it got to the point where, you know what I mean? I was really I gained a lot of confidence in myself. Yes. And I think that was a big part of kind of what changed me because for, for so long, I was really, I would always second guess myself. I mean, I still do sometimes. Like, I go through phases where sure. I second guess everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, like, that was kind of more of a way of life back then. Don't rock the boat and don't stand up for yourself and don't, you know what I mean? And I do. I really, I really was able to improve that as I practiced more and more. And the motivation was that it's best for the kids to actually do that. So that's what drove me to, to keep pushing myself. Right? You know, and this is, once again, very similar to being a manager in a team is you, you they don't have to like you, but they got to respect you. And, yeah. um, and I, there's this great book, Three Signs of a Miserable Job. I don't remember the writer, but and one of them is that uh, one of the signs is there's no metrics and there's no structure, and and the reason metrics and it, because the 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 employee doesn't know if they're doing a good job or not, and if they have metrics, they know if they're doing a good job or not. Right. And and you and and when you learn to embrace that, right? So the, there are parameters and the reasons why, and there's consequences for breaking those parameters, and and the reason is to try to help you. Um, be successful and in your case actually help them to save their lives possibly yeah for sure yeah so Aaron um, you kind of talked about that um, you and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth but you've kind of in a lot of ways you've you, you you've outgrown Nirvana for what it needed for you at that time yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I still love them, and I still, sure. you know what I mean? Like, I, I listen to them. I still have all my stuff. I still, yeah. I actually have a lot of Nirvana tattoos. Like, I'm very, I'm yeah. still very into them, but yeah. I don't, yeah, I just don't really connect with it the same way, and I think that's kind of a good thing in a sense. Yeah. Is there a, um, is there a current band that you're enjoying or other types of music that is now 
kind of helped fill that void? Um, honestly, I'm kind of stuck in the nineties. I mean, like I I listen to, I mean, like I got looking at my CDs right here. I got Soundgarden and Butthole Surfers. I mean, I like um, Tool, so I've got Perfect Circle and uh, there's still a lot of stuff from back then that I really like. Yeah. Um, there's a few new bands I like. I like Glorious Sons. Um, yeah, there's a few. I mean, but music in general, it's not just Nirvana. Like music in general is something that, and it's weird because I remember telling myself like that I would never get to a point where music wasn't one of the most important things in my life. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's just something happened and it's just not as important to me as it used to be. And I almost feel weird saying that because that was like something that I never thought would ever happen. Sure. But I Um, I still listen to music every day. I still, you know what I mean? It's still a big part of my life. It's just not as important as it used to be, if that makes sense. Totally. I totally understand. What has, is there one specific thing that's kind of taken the place of that? Oh, well, writing is kind of a big thing. I mean, I spend a lot of my time trying to learn promotion and trying to learn, like, there's a lot of stuff, like you said, involved in it. I mean, writing the stories, part one, and then editing and proofreading and then finding a publisher. And like, there's a lot to it. So that's kind of where my focus has been for the last few years anyway. So let's talk about your uh, – you just had a book published called Genocide, if I'm correct. Yes? Yep, yep. Talk to me about it. Uh, well, it's a story about, like, a young boy who's uh, got, like, a dysfunctional family, and uh, his uncle's in a gang, and his dad basically ends up owing money to the gang. So to pay him back, he offers up his son to be used as a prostitute. Uh, so the gang ends up keeping the kid until he's in his teens – and then they try to kill him, but he gets away. And then the rest of the book is basically him kind of getting his revenge on all the different gang members. So it's um, kind of... Uh, so it's a feel-good book. I'm yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, wow. What, what about that story did you feel... Why did you want to tell that story? Um, actually, I wrote... The first book I wrote was all about addiction. And it was all about like what I know. So it was like um, a kid who goes through, and I haven't published this book yet, but I plan to. But it kind of has like a secondary storyline of like the afterlife. So it starts out like with the character being like omnipotent and kind of like, you know, the idea of like an old soul, like the concept that like people have come back numerous times and some people are just naturally wiser because they've gone through life more times. That kind of concept is sort of like that. Okay. So Genocide was originally going to be a sequel to that. So I basically wanted to think of like the most challenging life that I could think of to add on to the story. Okay. And what um, – it, it, sounds, it sounds intense. So yeah. what would you what, – what genre would you put this in? What, talk to me a little bit about what kind of book this is. Uh, well, the first part, like the first half of it is kind of more like emotional driven and it kind of is like a, a really tragic story. So like that would kind of, I don't I mean, I'm, I've never really been good at putting it in a genre. I think it's placed in the horror genre, but I don't really consider it a horror book, like especially not in the classical sense. Uh, and then the second half is just a lot of like brutality. So it's, mm-hmm. I mean, they're kind of polar opposites. Okay. How's, uh, what's the reaction been so far? 
Uh, a lot of people like it, but I think only the kind of people that are going to be into that kind of thing are really reading it. <laughs> so yeah. I have I mean, I've only been published for a couple months, so I'm still doing my best to try to get out there. And I kind of understand it's not really a book for everyone, but it's just, I don't know, for some reason I'm, I'm kind of drawn to write in this style. Maybe it's because of all, you know, in my past there was yeah. always that dark side, and that's kind of where music kind of filled it. Mm-hmm. And now it's like a way to kind of get that out, but still not live it, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I've had a couple of musicians on the podcast over the past couple of months and we've said what do you do if you release a new album and um how do you promote it when you can't go on the road and do gigs um i guess a little bit that's where you're fighting aren't you yeah and it's a lot like music in the sense that there's a lot of competition out there yes right a lot of people are doing it so i mean how like how do you stand out amongst you know what i mean tons of people and I mean, the honest answer is I'm not really sure yet. Like, I, don't, yeah. I don't know that I do stand out yet. I mean, mm-hmm. like, and maybe I never will. But I mean, the fact that I'm published and the fact that it's out there and, yeah. you know, it feels like an accomplishment and I'm, I'm happy with that. And I'm, I'm going to keep going and kind of see where it takes me. Yeah. What surprised you about the finishing book? Were there Was there something in the story that you thought was going to go one way and it ended up going another? Yeah, I kind of have a weird process with writing. Like, I don't have the whole story worked out in my head when I start. Like, I start with an idea and kind of where it's going to go. And then a lot of the times I just kind of kind of improvise it as I go, and it seems to work out pretty well for me. But, um, yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, this story was more just like I was intending for it to be a really dark story. My first book was more like, and I, I'm not sure why I submitted my second one before my first one, but I did. (laughs) But my first book was more like kind of meaningful in the sense of trying to show empathy to how someone can end up in a place like jail. Right. Like it was kind of going through that lifestyle of how addiction and misfortune and all that kind of stuff can land you in a bad place. Okay. And, um, because you know, often, um, you know, one of my favorite stories is um, I was at a book signing. Uh, the writer Lawrence Block was here in Dallas. This is years ago, and there is a a a character Elaine that I um, I asked him. I said, "Hey, at the end of the book, I said she says something to Scudder, who's the main character, and I said I think that means." He knows, she knows that he is cheating on her, but she's saying she doesn't care. That's what it means to me. Mm-hmm. And he says, I think she does too. And I love the idea as the writer, he's like, I think so too. Now, she may be wrong, it may not be the case. Um, and he later expanded, he says, I, I believe what she says is, she, because she knows men and she knows the circumstances that she's saying that if you are doing something different, I understand and I love you. You know, our love is strong enough to get past this. So Mm -hmm. I I think it's interesting that as you, you're telling a dark tale, um, I guess the question I'm asking is, is there a purpose behind the story or was this just something you needed to tell Aaron? 
Um, I'm just, the thing about like anything creative, I think, is that interpretation is like one of the most important things. You know, I mean, even just going back to Nirvana, I was like, there was part of me that was like afraid of ever meeting him and finding out that I was wrong about the meaning of the songs because they meant so much to me. But like, I don't, I mean, what it means to me is honestly kind of irrelevant in the sense of like, I want it to be open for the interpretation of anybody that reads it. Like I even left like the the main character has no name and no description really. Wow. So it's kind of like open for whoever's reading it to sort of envision it however they want, right? Interesting. Very interesting. Um, you know, we're going to get to in a little bit the Mary question, but there's been a lot of discussion um, where – I've told this story multiple times, but um, Isaac Asimov is was a, a childhood um, – hero of mine. I loved his books. I I loved his collection of short stories. I loved all his novels and his biography, his autobiography. He tells a story. He's at a, he's at a a lecture and he starts telling what a story means and someone raises their hand and says, Dr. Asimov, I don't think that's what the story means. And he says, well, I wrote the story. Wouldn't I know what it means? And the reader said, well, just because you wrote the story, what makes you think you know what it means? And and Asimov said, I think you're absolutely right, and I stand corrected. Yeah, so That's awesome. Right? I, I think that's exactly what you're saying is um, you, you, you have your purpose, but the whole idea is it's in the eye of the reader. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like people seek out things when they need them too, right? So if you're reading something and you find benefit to it, then, you know, I would hate to be the one to to take that away from someone by saying, oh, that's not what it means, because it can mean whatever whatever they want it to mean. I'm actually working on a book that takes place over the quarantine, and it's um, it wasn't originally going to be a book over the quarantine. It's kind of about psychosis, though, so it's kind of written in the same style. Um so, yeah, the the main character, his wife falls down the stairs and uh, I needed a reason for that she could stay home from work and no one would question it. And then all of a sudden this whole virus thing came up. It's like, huh, well, that fits. So I kind of turned it into that and trying to add some like some of the pop culture stuff in there, like just kind of to, to timestamp it almost like okay. there's some references to them watching Tiger King, <laughs> that okay. kind of stuff. Oh, interesting. But, OK, good. Um, and, um, if someone wants to get genocide, what's the best way to do it? Uh, it's on Amazon. Okay. Uh, if you just look up my name, Aaron Liebold, it's easier to find because okay. there's a bunch of things with the title of genocide. Okay. Um, and it's also available at the, uh, my publisher's website, uh, breakingrulespublishing.com. Okay, good. All right. Um, Aaron, what have I not asked you that I should have? Um, I don't know. I think uh, I think things are going pretty well. All right. Anything? Well, that, if there's anything else you want to know, feel free. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, we got it. Before we let you go, I got to ask the Mary question. So, yep. um, for those of you, if this is your first podcast, welcome. We're so glad you're listening. Um, Jay Armstrong is an honors English teacher from the Philadelphia area, and every year, his seniors in his honors English class. Um, they take two days, and he breaks down Bruce Springsteen's Thunder Road as a poem. 
Mm-hmm. They go through all the lyrics. He talks about the imagery of the song. He talks about the different references. Um, it's often compared to Robert Frost, uh, The Road Not Taken. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the two days, he looks at his class and he says, does Mary get in the car? So, right. Aaron, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car? <laughs> all right. And I do have an answer for you. I'm just I'm worried because I know this is a Bruce Springsteen podcast and I don't want to, you know what I mean? I don't know there, what there, everybody else's opinion, but I. <laughs> so this there is um, the this is um, Schrodinger's cat. This is the question that um, there uh, about two thirds of the listeners say, yes, she gets in the car. But another third says no. Yes, so yeah, I would be on the no category. Talk to me. Tell me. Tell me your. Tell me your reasons. Uh, it just. It sounds like he's basically saying like like he's saying like you're you're not beautiful, but that's all right. Like you're not getting any younger. Like it. It kind of sounds to me like he's saying to her like your time's running out, and if you want to be with anybody, like you better come with me, and I'm not going to change. Um. Yeah, so it's like, I don't know, it doesn't sound like there's, it sounds like the relationship has been going on for a while, and he hasn't been receptive to it, and he hasn't been giving her everything that she needs, so it's almost like he's asking her to settle because she's not going to be able to get anything better. I think that is an absolutely valid um, answer. I, I, I have had other people say that. I think you said it very well, so I, I think great answer. So do not worry that the, your, uh, we Springsteen fans are going to go no. In fact, <laughs> funny story, someone asked me the other day, um, you know, wouldn't you just love to talk Bruce, to have Bruce on the podcast? And I go, absolutely. I said, yeah. I said, and but I, I would preference when I asked him the Mary question, because I would ask him the Mary question, I would tell the Dr. Asimov story. That says, okay, Bruce, just because whatever you answer does not necessarily make it the right answer. Because yeah. I think there's uh, it, there's just a lot to be said for that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. The first time I listened to it, that was like what I thought. I was like, whoa, yeah, this is clear to me. And then the second yeah. time I listened to it, I kind of was like, well, you know, but I, I kind of got to stick with my first, my first instinct okay. on it. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Any final thoughts you want to share, Aaron? Um, I actually had one question for you, sure. being a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I just heard uh, – do you know who Tom Morello is, obviously, right? Absolutely. So he's got a station – a show on the radio station that I listen to. Mm-hmm. And he played – he loves Bruce Springsteen. And he played a song called 41 Shots, American yes. Skin. Are yes. you familiar with that song? Absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. I don't really have a question about it. I just I heard it, and I knew I was meeting with you, and I was like, I got to bring that up because that was such a cool song, and so, it was such a cool case, right? Well, not yeah. a cool case, but like a no. What a beautiful, powerful song, yeah. especially in today's environment. Absolutely. Um, he um, the by the way, Morella toured with him um, for um, during when Little Steven. Um, was often um, filming his uh, Lilyhammer series. Uh, Morella toured and actually played, um, and so he, they, um, we got to hear Tom's um, guitar uh, during the tour, which was a very cool, different, just kind of a different in their 
version of Ghost of Tom Joad is something pretty amazing. Um, right. Yeah, so if you have not heard that, you should check that out. Um, Rage Against the Machine did a cover first, and then um, when, yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah, so when Tom actually joins um, Bruce on the High Hopes tour, they did a. There is a version of him, him and Bruce exchanging verses, so which is very nicely done. Yeah, that's pretty uh, cool. Yeah, um, yeah, Forty One Shots, American Skin, um, in today's environment is just so. Um, powerful and yeah, it, it it says a lot about and you know and then if you a lot of people will who do not pay attention to the song will well this is a slam against the police and and in fact the very first verse is um, you're standing over the body in the vestibule praying for his life which is the policeman's um, perspective. He, right. You know, you've realized you've shot someone you shouldn't have, and now then you are, what? Oh, please, please do not let him die. I don't want to be something. So yeah, pretty amazing song. Thank you for bringing yeah. it up. Yeah. Oh, so the Amadou Diallo case is very relevant to what's going on now, and so that's probably why he played it. But I thought of you. So yeah, <laughs> no, it is. It's very true. And uh, um, Bruce currently, you know, he has the channel on. Um, e Street Radio, he does, they have a Springsteen-only channel on Sirius XM. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the past five or six weeks, maybe longer than that, he's been, um, every, every every two weeks he's been doing from his house to ours. And he does about an hour, hour and 15 minutes where he DJs. He doesn't play live music. He picks songs and explains why he's picking them. Well, that's cool. uh, and today's uh, one, um, he had one today as we're recording this. It's on June 17th, and um, he said that he's specifically talking to the um, person in the White House to put on an effing mask. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, it was uh, – so uh, Esquire magazine says, Bruce Springsteen just told – Trump to put on an effing mask, and it kind of went. Yeah. so. Um, if you get a chance to check those out, you should. It's been a very diverse, diverse amount of songs he's played, and kind of talked about that. That's great. Right on. Aaron, this has been a great time. I, I, I hope you've had fun. Oh um, yeah. I appreciate you sharing so much of yourself. Um, that I, I applaud your your journey, not only in um, finding a way to beat your addiction, but your journey in becoming a writer and, and taking that energy and, and using it to help others. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's a, something you should be really proud of, and I'm glad you shared it with us. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you having me on. It's been a, a great talk. Yeah, so if someone wants to reach you, how can they? I'm on Facebook, uh, just my name. I have a author page, which is Aaron Liebold Blogs on Facebook. Um, and I think Instagram, I'm Aaron Liebold author okay. and Twitter, I'm BMR Liebold. All right. Very nice. Hang tight while I do a little bit of business. If you want to be on the show and share your story, love to have you. 
uh, several ways you can reach me. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is on Twitter at SetLustingBruce. Uh, you can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. If you go to setlustingbruce.com, from there you can find our Patreon page. You can find our um, our store where you can buy a Set Listing Bruce t-shirt. Uh, you can find links to past shows and links to other Springsteen podcasts and other blogs, uh, friends of the show. Uh, please let us know. Go to iTunes, rate and review us. It always helps. And go to Amazon and check out uh, Genocide. Uh, search for Aaron Liebold and check out the book. And if you end up uh, purchasing, put a note that you heard about it on Set Lessing Bruce. So Aaron will know that he's not just uh, talking into the darkness. <laughs> My friend, I hope you are staying safe. I hope you are staying well during this time. Good luck on the new book. Good luck on uh, Genocide. I hope it is success for you. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Listeners, you stay safe, you be careful, and we'll talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. Set Listing Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.